The things I learned from there, obviously with the psychology, it's very much about people. And business is actually all about people. Like you can get all your processes, you can get it all automated, but at the end of the day, you're working with people because internally and externally, they're the ones who help make your business run. And ultimately, they're the ones that help make your business a success in the long run. So mm-hmm. I think the skills from psychology and understanding people and recognizing the importance that people do have in your day. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. We're chasing down the most successful female entrepreneurs from around the globe, not only to hear their life story, but to extract their knowledge and world-class insights. If you're curious and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for some hard-hitting truths, a dose of inspo, and learnings you can apply right away. Strap in. How do you let fierce competition make you, not break you? That's the conversation we're having with Amanda New, co-founder of Eva, a high-quality homewares and furniture business. The brand targets what they like to call IKEA graduates, someone that's ready to upgrade their IKEA sofa to something a little fancier. But Eva didn't always sell furniture. In fact, when they started out in 2017, they cut their teeth selling the mattress in a box as Eva Mattress. It soon became quite a cluttered and competitive space. So in order to stay relevant and ahead of the competition, they diversified their product offering, doubled down on their test and learn approach to marketing, and Amanda even found a way to apply her background in neuropsychology to get into the minds of her customer. So I want to kick off by asking you a little bit about your background because you don't have a business background. You worked in clinical neuropsychology. Mm-hmm. So how did you come to be working and building a business with your partner? Oh, it's such a long story. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, so yeah, we started back in 2017 and I actually just finished my neuropsych degree. So I was up in Sydney for two years, came back to Melbourne and I was waiting for my registration to come through because you got to get a rego before you can say I'm a psych and practice in that. So during that time I was volunteering and then at the time I my partner, he was thinking, oh my gosh, let's explore a business idea. Let's let's get into it. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of started from there. So he was like into the the retail, the ops, that kind of thing. Well, I was more into like the creatives, like starting Instagram accounts back in 2017, the content planning, the photo shoots and going to all the web agency meetings and this whole new world. It was really exciting. And then by the time I got my registration, I got a job in Neuropsych pretty much straight away. So then I started working at Eva sort of after hours. Um, about a year in, I then kind of dropped my hours in neuropsych so we can do sort of 50-50. And then about a year, I think last year was when I decided to go full steam at Eva. So that's sort of been the journey since then. <laughs> so tell us where the idea for Eva came about. Was that your partner's idea? Did you did he sense like an opportunity in the market? Mm, yeah. So so his previous business, he was on he was on eBay and he actually was selling mattresses there. So we both knew that there was uh, there was a market for people purchasing mattresses online. And so what we wanted to do then was was think about, let's take a step back and think about like mattresses as a whole. What is the industry doing? And so thinking back to 2017, like you think the brick and mortar stores, you think, you know, the, the 40 winks of the world, you go mm-hmm. into a store, you lie down on the mattress for like 10 minutes and like there's a salesman who's like walking around awkwardly like, oh my God, please don't look at me as I lie down. Like this is not an uncomfortable <laughs> look. And then after that 10 minutes or so, you drop like thousands of dollars on the mattress. And like what a backward way of purchasing 
a huge product that's going to be with you for like the next eight to 10 years of your life. And so we were thinking, well, this whole transaction is, is very much just missing that customer focus. And so we're thinking, okay, well, this is what the industry is missing at the moment. Let's try and infuse that, that focus of the customer into EVA. And I guess that's sort of like our current EVA business model does have those selling points. It is that free next day metric delivery. It is that 120 night trial where you can actually give the mattress a good go in your home for like four months, right? Mm. And then you're like, cool, if it's not good for you, then that's fine because it's meant to be for you. It's customer first. And then we've always thought about the type of product in the sense that we want it to be a quality product as well. So I guess that's sort of why I went down that traditional hybrid mattress approach with the traditional sort of pocket springs, the memory foam, because you want to be able to let customers know that there is, you can bridge that gap between a quality product you can get in the store, but you can also get that online. And then what we do with our product is then we pass all those savings from, you know, middlemen and like having all this overhead costs to the customers directly. So it's very much customer centric. So you started off as a single product business as the mattress in the box. Yeah. But you've since expanded into lots of other products. Why did you decide to focus on just one thing in the beginning? I think it's easier than focusing on multiple things. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, like, kudos to businesses that do start off with, like, lots and lots of products at, at the one go. But I think for us, we, we really wanted to choose just the one product so that we could find that, that product market fit a lot sooner than it would be if it were multiple products. And so by doing that, it meant that we can work towards establishing, you know, in essence, a business first so that we can, we, you know, this product is a, a product that can fit the market we can therefore make a business out of this and then work from there. I so remember when the mattress in a box burst onto the scene because yep. it was such a different shopping experience, as you said. You know, mm. you usually go in, you lie down, you have that awkward encounter. Oh my God. <laughs> I, hope not, I hope I don't fall asleep. And then everyone was buying a mattress in a box and it was arriving. And, mm. and the risk, I suppose, there is that you weren't able to try before you buy. Mm. Obviously, you buy and then you try. Were there any challenges around that? As, yeah. as, you know, obviously that's what you're offering. You say, buy it, try it. Were people like, what? Like, is this, yeah. this going to work? Do I then have to send it back? And yeah, all that? absolutely. Like, there's a huge, I think, friction at the start because mm. it's a new way of doing things. And with change, there's always a period where you have to go through, like, all the ups and downs and be like, guys, this is actually a legit thing that will help you in the long term. And then, so, like, it's always, like, one of those things that you need to put the education piece out there. Mm. That education, though, is going to be very expensive. It's always very expensive to put education out there, but it's it's worth it in the end. I think because we weren't the only ones doing it at the time either. We weren't the first movers in that category. Mm-hmm. But because there were a bunch of us doing it at the same time, in a way, we're all quite synergistic in our approach. Be like, guys, this is the better way of doing it. Give it a go. Trust me. It's free returns as well. Like we, we pick it up and it all gets donated to charity. So it's like literally guaranteed. <laughs> yeah. Has that been a costly exercise for you in terms of, like, as you said, like mm. if someone's trying a mattress and they don't like it or it's not right or it's not the right fit and then they return it, it's not something that you can resell. Mm. So yeah. how do you manage that process? I, I think it's about trying to incorporate that into your pricing structure because mm. there's always going to be people who's like, oh my gosh, I've got my family coming to visit on the weekend. I want to just buy a bunch of mattresses and just pop that and then mm. return it after. And like, mm. there's always going to be like a population of people who will do that. But as long as we plan for it in advance, pop it into the pricing structure, then it's the people who really do enjoy the mattress that will keep the business growing in the long term. 
So you've diversified your product offering over time and now you're the multi-product brand. Mm. In those early days of expansion and deciding what to what to offer your customers, yeah. how did you go about that? How did you decide? Were you talking to your customers? Yeah, absolutely. So I think at the start we were, because it's a single product business, that means that we were able to do as many different types of tests as we could on platforms like Facebook, for instance, at the time it was a lot easier. Now it's a little bit more expensive. But back then, we could then test our messaging and test um, which audiences resonated with the type of content we popped out. And then that way we can sort of work from there. I guess the reason why we wanted to diversify away from being a single product business, uh, mattress specifically, was because the competitors just like tripled in the first Mm. two years. And we're like, oh my God, like this is insane. Like why are there suddenly so many mattress in the box companies out there? And we had to then sort of try and, and, and pivot in a way in the sense that if you think about the mattresses, they're not particularly sexy products. So like they're literally this thing that you lie on. And a lot of the time people purchase mattresses because it's, it's, it's born out of necessity. It's like you either because you've got a bad back and you're like, cool, I need to invest in a new mattress or I'm fitting out a room and I've got to just get mattresses in there. So it's not so much of a fun kind of thing to do. It's more like a necessity. Mm. And so... If you think about that and you're like, cool, then why do people purchase mattresses? Is it because, one, your brand is more familiar, therefore the brand equity is stronger here? Or is it, two, the, the price, the, the value that they receive from there? And so these two things eventually down the line, it, it kind of turns this whole mattress industry into like a price war kind of game, mm. which is kind of what you've seen with like 40 yeah. Winks and Snooze a lot of the time, like 50% off all yeah. the time. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. how are you 50% off all the time? That doesn't make any sense. And it's just because that's their pricing model. And so, yeah, mm. sort of thinking about that and trying to move away from that price war game to something that's a little bit more sustainable. Mm. I want to talk about the competition because I feel like there's, you know, Koala, which is a very big, well-known brand. There's Casper in the US. There's another brand, I think, in Germany called Emma. So there are lots of brands that have this mattress in the box concept. And it's Mm. almost like a David and Goliath kind of story. Like you are the smaller player offering a similar sort of product. What's your experience been like with the competition? And how have you kind of mentally dealt with that? Because it can be hard when Mm. competitors kind of like fly in and like take market share. Yeah, really hard. (laughs) (laughs) No, it definitely has been hard, but I think we we like to see ourselves as the, kind of like the underdog, right? Um, it doesn't mean that we're doing worse. It just means that we're going at our own pace and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Going slower doesn't mean that you're doing things worse than people who are going faster. It means that you're taking your, your time to get there, to learn along the way and hopefully apply those learnings to your next venture. So yeah, I think in terms of those immediate competitors, definitely Koala, definitely the Casper of the world, like they're all our immediate competitors. But if I think if we think about why do we exist? We exist because we want to make furniture buying a much easier experience than what it is now. Then the real competitors are those brick and mortar stores that continue to make you sit in that mattress store for like 10 minutes and then purchase it for an investment for eight to 10 years without giving you a test drive. Mm -hmm. So those are the real competitors and everybody else who's in this immediate competitor world is helping us move past that. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point you make. It's quite a diverse uh, landscape in terms of your competitors. Um, <laughs> and you are still ahead of the game, you know, compared to your 40 winks, but then you do still have those immediate players, as mm. you mentioned. Talk us through what your differentiator is as a brand, as a product. Like, I'm very interested to know mm. how do you communicate what's unique about your business to your customers? 
Yeah. So I think that sort of branding element has been a very iterative process for us. So at the start, it was like, cool, we just sell mattresses in a way that's that's our identity. And as we sort of diversified from being just a mattress in a box company to now selling furniture, like we just released the sofa and it's like, well, we, we're more than just the mattress in a box now. It was that decoupling of brand versus product that we had to work through for these last few years. And we went through quite a few sort of rebranding sort of sessions like, who are we? What do we care about? Who is our audience? Why do they want to buy from us? Like all these questions was, were really difficult questions to ask and also to answer. So we differentiate in the sense that we try to target sort of the mid-market. So at the moment, if you think about, you might go to Ikea and say, for my first time, I'm going to purchase this, this coffee table just because I need a coffee table for now. And then after a year or so, you're like, oh my gosh, I need a better coffee table. Like, I don't want to have another Ikea coffee table. These people who move away from Ikea, we like to call them the Ikea graduates. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's good. That is good, yeah. And um, that is the market that we're targeting for. Which means that the products that we pop out are guaranteed to be high quality, but not like $7,000 because that's ridiculous. Nobody's going to be able to afford that. Like the mid-market is not going to afford that. So... We want to make sure it's high quality and target towards those people who want to make that extra sort of investment to a good quality mm-hmm. product. I just want to go back to, you were saying before how you've gone on this kind of branding evolution and you started off as a mattress brand. I mm. think, was your name Eva Mattress? It was Eva in Mattress. In the beginning. <laughs> I imagine your trademarks were probably mm-hmm. Eva Mattress mm-hmm. and you've kind of gone on this journey of expanding your product and therefore expanding your brand and what that means in the eyes of the customer. What were some of the really hard things about that journey? Like what were some of the challenges with having to kind of transform your brand, including your name to mm-hmm. a degree? Yeah, it was, oh gosh, it was really hard because it, it was trying to decouple your brand from your product. And so at the start, it was like, it was super easy because it's like, cool, if you're, everyone thought about Eva Mattress, they know we're a mattress company. We didn't have to educate them on who Eva is because Eva equals mattress and mattress equals Eva. Mm-hmm. And then as we expanded the product line, we then had to think about, okay, who are we outside of our mattress? Like we need to also exist, even if we're not selling mattresses anymore, we need to exist if we're selling pillows or bed frames. And now, now so far, it's like we need to really dive deep into the guts of why do we exist? And so that was a really challenging process and it continues to iterate even to this day. We're doing branding documentation about all of these sort of questions. It's sort of like an existential kind of crisis in a way. (laughs) um, One that as we get through it, it will reap so many benefits for us moving forward. And how did you kind of educate the customer? How did you tell them like, we ain't even mattresses anymore. We offer so many more things. Mm, yeah, it's it was a slow process. So it started off, the first thing we did was photography. Mm. Um, it comes down to the types of photos you take and, and I guess even the types of the models and the poses in a way, it was very intentional with like, let's make sure these posts don't look too posy. They want to make sure it looks candid, make sure that they're in their home and they're actually doing something that they would do in their home. That way it feels like it's a much of a seamless experience entering the brand. So that was photography. The next thing we did was to think about how we talked. And so we have a really, really, really great copywriter and she was really, really good at trying to develop that customer persona into like thinking, cool, um, what would the customer think about if they wanted to talk to us directly? And we crafted that persona so that in all of our nurture emails or even on our ads, 
this is somebody that's talking directly to you mm-hmm. and this is this is how we how we sort of communicate yeah amazing through that evolution when did you realize that you were starting to make your mark on the world and people were starting to notice Eva and they were coming and shopping with you and you had repeat buyers mm. when were you making your mark <laughs> i have a really funny story about that um <laughs> I think it actually this happened about a year or maybe two years ago now. We actually received a cease and desist letter. Not, not, it's not funny, but like, <laughs> <laughs> You're like this is quite serious, but no, also no, quite funny. It's a great story. Yeah. yeah. Um, basically, we we received a cease and desist letter from one of our biggest competitors. They're like so much bigger than us, and it was in relation to this comparison page that we had made up. Um, I think it was just something that we had written wrong, and I was like, oh yeah, well, I totally get that. We changed it right right away. Mm-hmm. But it kind of indicated to us like somebody would have had to take the time to sit on our website and like crawl through mm. all of our pages, make a list and like really document it all. And they would have had to either you know, pay their legal office to, to do this, to, to find our address and send it out to us. Or they would have had to get somebody who was working in-house to do all of that, write up the email, sorry, write up the, the letter pop it in the post and send it to us. And we're just like, oh my God, look at all this effort they went to to do this. This is incredible. And so like we actually, I remember we passed that letter around the lunch tables that day. I was like, guys, read this. This is incredible. We need, to, we need to frame this up because this means that we are legit now. This is amazing. They recognized us. And so, yeah, that was really, um, yeah, that was a really, really, really interesting day. <laughs> do you know what I love about that story? Like... <laughs> I would imagine that any business owner that receives a cease and desist letter from a competitor or anyone being like, stop doing what you're doing, would freak Freak out out. (laughs) and be like, oh, fuck, like, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, this is really bad. Like, I'm going to have to pay legal fees or whatever, like, you know, go into this kind of spiral. And you're like, here, everyone, let's celebrate this. Yeah, and I think that's just such a beautiful story because I think it goes to show, like, your mindset Mm. around things like that. And, you know, like, seeing something as... Yeah. Not a threat, but evidence of recognition yeah. is amazing. Like, where does that come from? Where does that really amazing, for want of a better word, growth mindset come from? Well, that's a really great question. I, I, <laughs> I think it's just something that my, even my family, so they, they've actually immigrated from Malaysia through to New Zealand. I was actually born in New Zealand and came here. And so they've had to continually start up a new life sort of from, from Malaysia to New Zealand and also here. And so it's sort of like seeing them go through that struggle and then it's like, you know what? Life is long. This, ha- this is going to impact me for the next, I don't know, X minutes of my life. But that doesn't mean my life is over. It means we're going to keep on going because next week is going to be a completely different story and, and then we'll, we'll do all that then. So, mm. yeah. I love that. It's making the most of those moments as well mm. that you can, yeah, you can look at them in a negative light totally. or you can make the most of it. And- yeah. Celebrate it. (laughs) So good. It's so good. Just quickly, do you think that your background in clinical neuropsychology has impacted the way that you think about business and you do business? Mm, I definitely think so. Neuropsychology is such a niche area. Like even my friends and family have no idea what that is. What is it? Tell us. Nobody knows. (laughs) (laughs) Not not even you. It's a mystery (laughs) and I'm not sharing it on this channel. (laughs) No, it's like, okay, so neuropsychology is... It's a study of the relationship between brain and behavior. Mm. So um, at the time, I was very heavily involved in assessment and diagnosis of cognitive disorders. So um, my expertise was mostly in dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So I was doing clinical trials and neuropsych testing for all of that. And so very different world to where mm. I am now. 
But the things I learned from there was obviously with the, the psychology, it's very much about people. Yeah. And business is actually all about people. Like you can get all your processes, you can get it all, all automated. But at the end of the day, you're working with people because internally and externally, they're the ones who may help make your business run. And ultimately, they're the ones that help make your business a success in the long run. So mm-hmm. I think the skills from psychology and understanding people and recognizing the importance that people do have in your day, especially not just in terms of work and the actual, you know, tasks that they do, but the attitudes that they bring to work or their personalities or their experiences that mold them into viewing things in a certain way. All of that is super important because that way, if you recognize that, then you can know how to bring out the best in that person as well. Mm. And I imagine that this would be helping you with managing your team. You know, you have a team of 20 people, which is amazing. You've grown, you managed to grow through COVID. What's your experience been like building a team through some of those challenges, Mm -hmm. but also, I guess, using your neuropsychology background to bring Mm -hmm. out the best in people? Yeah. So I think I am still learning. (laughs) And so I think it's a continual learning experience. And you're right, like in COVID, our business really grew and as would a lot of e-commerce businesses during that time. And what we recognized was, okay, cool. If the business is growing this fast, I need to catch up. I need to read as many articles as I can from HBR. I need to read everything about everything as, as quickly as I can because we have now this team who's looking up to us to help give them direction in this or that. And it's sort of like, cool, I can't say that I know everything, but I'm going to try and learn about it and I'll get back to you. And so I think for me, humility in myself, but also humility in others is such mm. a big, big factor to ensuring that success in the business and also in that person's professional goals can can be achieved in the long term. So yeah, humility. Humility. <laughs> I, I don't that. know if we've had that response we before. We haven't, but mm. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> how has that played out? Can you give us an example of maybe a conversation that you've had with an employee or how you approach your team with humility? How's it played mm. out in the office? I'd really love to know. Yeah, I think it, it does come down to acknowledging that you don't know everything. Mm. And especially somebody like me who hasn't had that business training or that marketing training to be like, hey guys, I know everything about marketing. I know how to run a business. Actually, no, I'm learning it along the way. And because in our team, everyone is quite young as well. So we're all sort of in the same sort of age range and stage in our careers and our lives that we we respect each other, but we also know that not everyone is going to have the answers to everything. So let's just give it a go and trust that we're all in the same mindset about having the interests of the business at heart Mm. and go from there. So it's a lot about trust as well. Mm. I guess it also a word that came to mind is like vulnerability, mm-hmm. like leading mm. with vulnerability and being real with your team and not putting on a facade of like, yeah, I know everything, but it's like, nah, I don't. Yeah. Um, but we'll learn together. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, yeah, vulnerability and humility go very much hand in hand. They do. Yeah. yeah. What mistakes have you made along the way in terms of leading people? <laughs> oh my God. You, what have you learned? Oh my God. So many things. So many, just so many mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I think like it's, it, it is trying to separate when I was doing my, my own interviews in the clinical neuropsych setting and giving feedback in that, in that way from giving feedback to people at work who might not necessarily be prepared to receive that feedback. Mm. And so I guess my approach in the past used to be because they, they, they come to me for a reason to do an assessment 
They know why they're here and they've already agreed to receive feedback and things like that. Whereas in a work setting, they don't, sometimes people don't want to hear feedback. They want to, they, maybe they don't want to get better. Like there's all these other factors surrounding why they are in that business, why they're in that team that we need to take the time out to sit and actually listen and understand their experiences before we go, hey, here's some feedback for you. That's never going to work. <laughs> mm. Do you have an example of a mm. conversation where that's happened, where, you know, somebody has been struggling or mm. um, underperforming and you've had to kind of provide that feedback maybe to someone who wasn't ready to take it, take it on? I think it's always about setting down the context. So you would call up a meeting, well, hey, let's have a chat on Thursday. And then obviously when somebody asks you for a chat, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, why, why are you chatting with me? You're my boss. Like, why, what do you want from me? Um, and then sort of, if you think about that person from that perspective, you kind of think about, cool, maybe they want more context. And so giving them more information around why we're chatting can be really, really helpful. I think preparation comes a long way as well. So in terms of that Thursday chat, make sure you write down every single point that you want to talk about it and practice. So practice how you're going to say it, how you're going to come across the way that feedback's going to come across. But I think also printing out that feedback sheet and giving to the other person, it will kind of show that person that you've spent so much time thinking about their progress and their, their current stage that hopefully that they appreciate this is to help that person. Because it takes a lot, a lot of time to sit and think and write in a way that is meant to be constructive, especially if you're in a really negative state of mind. Like, oh my gosh, you're not doing a great job. You just get all negative and all that. But like, sitting down, going through that motion first and then going back to that and say, cool, this is not necessary for them to know. Cross that out. Why am I writing this? Okay, cool. This is because they want to get better in this. And so doing all that prep work beforehand and then giving that to them on the day and then hopefully guiding them through that will make it a lot easier. I love that. It's mm. great advice. You also work with your partner. Mm. What are some of the challenges that come up with working closely and living <laughs> with, oh your, with someone? <laughs> I see him way too much. <laughs> I don't think it's healthy. <laughs> no, um, I think I definitely see him at work. I see him at home. And also we have the same group of friends. So he's, he's also there. But how we um, combat that is at work, we are in two quite separate sort of departments in a way. So starting from when we first started. So he has he's remained in that operational um, and product side of things and I've moved into the marketing side of things. So I guess how we work through that is we trust to not ever cross over to each other's <laughs> departments. I think once you start crossing things over, that's when things get really, really messy. And we've, we've gone through that in the past when I'm sort of like, hey, this operations manual is super messy he doesn't like that. And I, I didn't like it when he came over and gave me some things about my marketing. I'm like, well, stop it. <laughs> so I think we've, we've, we've sort of learned to trust that the, the decisions that we make at that point in time with the resources that we have is for the best interest of the mm -hmm. company. And so if we trust that we're doing that at that time, then that makes it a lot easier to just keep on going with our disparate sort of mm -hmm. functions and work together. Yeah. What about in terms of like business decisions in terms of, you know, the vision or the strategy or, you know, more general kind of yeah decisions you have to make in the business where both of you have to contribute and be on board? Yeah. Do you always say eye to eye or sometimes there might be <laughs> conflict? Tell yeah, us. No, uh, we definitely don't see eye to eye on, on all of those bigger business decisions. But I think it does come down to 
understanding why we exist in the first place mm. and like just stripping it back down to the the basics of why are we here and why do we start this business and then reminding each other of that when we decide on our vision or our mission or making those big decisions around expanding our product line. Like do these decisions that we are making, are they going to keep on building this mission that we're working towards? So I think with that in mind, yeah, that makes it a lot easier, but mm. No, it's it's a work in progress for sure. <laughs> you mentioned before that you kind of found yourself or you worked your way into the the marketing department. Oh my God. <laughs> and I'm really interested how you found yourself there. Was this had you kind of delayed and you know played in different functions of the business and decided mm. I love marketing, I want to be here, I'm creative. How did you find your way there? Yeah, I, I guess like marketing is is pretty much applied psychology in a way mm. um, it's it's like a tangible form psychology because mm. it's like now it's applying it to the real world like why do we make decisions like about buying this type of laptop or this kind of phone and it, all the decisions around there is because it's based on consumer psychology and, and why we do the things that we do and I sort of saw that natural progression from mm. using that sort of psych background to, into marketing for a different application and I think neuropsychology is is amazing but it's incredibly niche and also nobody knows about it. So like so niche, whereas marketing is, it, it opens your eyes up to the broader world. And it's not just within Australia. It's like the entire world is using marketing to get to where they are now. Like this is where the biggest businesses in the world have succeeded because their marketings are like, they're on point, right? And it's understanding how they got there. And I think that's the next sort of big learning step for me as well. I've always been really interested in going to that kind of thing. And what do you find working from a marketing perspective? Like what are you mm. testing and learning at the moment? We are constantly testing <laughs> everything and anything. The type of mindset that we, we like to employ within the marketing team is it, it is that experimental mindset because we don't know everything. Let's just test it. Let's see what, how, what the results say because we can't say for sure that an audience is going to resonate with this. So let's make 10 different versions of this, see which one sticks and that's the one that we go with. So very much pop it onto the wall and see whatever, whatever sticks in the wall. <laughs> what have you learned? We learned that as we expanded from mattresses to sheets, for instance, the type of audiences who purchase sheets aren't necessarily the same as people who purchase mattresses. And that's because you can actually gift sheets to people, whereas gifting mattresses is not so much of a thing. <laughs> I guess in terms of the sheets as well, people might purchase it out of an aesthetic desire. It's like, oh, I feel like new sheets today. I'm going to mm. purchase sheets. So it's like, that learning that we've had is like every single product needs to come from several different reasons and we need to know what those reasons are in order to effectively market them moving forward. And in terms of your marketing, where do you spend cash? Is it mainly through digital advertising, PR, SEO? Like yeah. what's your strategy marketing. when it comes to your yeah marketing? Yeah, um, it's, it's mainly been digital. Yeah. So that's been digital since we first started, actually. And I guess how we allocate sort of capital, it's based on making sure that the channel that we use has the biggest return for every dollar that we spend. And so that does involve a matter of testing these channels and then giving it a go for a few months. And if it's not working, we cut that. Let's move on to the next channel. Um, at the moment, you know, Facebook and, and Google is the biggest, and I'm sure all mm. the e-commerce companies out there are using that as well. And so for those those platforms, it's like testing, learning, iterating, and continuing that that cycle. Mm. So in terms of money, <laughs> in terms of cash, so mm -hmm. you have bootstrapped the business up until this point. You haven't taken on an external investment. 
Why have you chosen to do that? And how difficult has that been? <laughs> Hard. Um, yeah, no, it's it's been, it has certainly been a slower journey compared to other companies who might have taken on financing for mm. sure. I think the reason why is because if you think about it, Bootstrapped, it's not a new concept. Like a lot of businesses in the old days, people would save up money and they'd be like, well, I'm going to just make a business with all this money that I've saved. And like, so it's not like a different way of buying. It's always been the case. I think for us, we, we've always wanted to focus on building a business first. Like I'm trying to separate business from building a brand, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And this is just the way that we've done it. It might not be the right way, but it's how we've approached it. Building a business in the sense that we want to make sure the product that we sell is going to make money. Like we're going to make sure it makes money for us to grow the business or even have a business in the first place. And from there, for these last sort of three to four years almost now, that was our sole focus, to build a business. And the reason why I want to do that is so that before we start sort of doing above-the-line marketing and you know, put ourselves out in PR, we want to make sure we have the right to exist as a business before we can jump on board and do all those sorts of things first. So that's sort of been our focus, yeah, since then until now. And then hopefully now we can start doing some more branding things. <laughs> it's interesting. It reminds mm. me of our chat with Kayla from Tribe Skincare. She said exactly the same thing. Mm. She came from more of an operational background and she was like, I've spent the last three years building a business, but I haven't built a brand. And now mm. she's kind of going back and retrofitting, doing all that work and kind of retrofitting the brand onto the business. So it's an interesting approach. Do you think it's played in your favor doing that? Given mm. the fact that there are such mm. big brands like Koala that are operating sure. in your space. Yeah. In the sense that it does come down to financing as well. Like to build a brand and to put all those branding marketing campaigns out there, it is a very costly exercise. Mm. And so for us at the point in time, it was, okay, let's just build a business. Let's make sure it, runs, it makes money. And then from there, we'll try and either think about, are we going to reinvest it into the brand or do we want to reinvest it in growing the next product line or do you want to invest it in bringing more highs on board so that the business can run on its own even if I'm not going to be there we know it's going to run on its own and so it depends on which business you're in or what kind of business you want to run but I guess this is just the way we've done it since. Mm. Mm. Are you open to raising capital in the future or is this something that you want to Mm. fully retain? Um, If somebody came to me and was like Amanda (laughs) I have $200 million. <laughs> just a little bit. Just a, t- just a little bit of, you know little bit of cash money. I mean, like, yeah, I'd, I'd be open to it. <laughs> well, you just put it out there in the universe, so. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think for anyone, like, it'd be stupid not to say, yes, I'm going to take that money because that's, you know, that's going to help me get from A to B so much faster. Mm-hmm. The, the way that we've always viewed financing or investments is more of a, a tactical move, I suppose. Mm-hmm. In the sense that because we've built this business, we know that it's, it's been profitable since day one. So what we need next, if we want to go international, that's going to be super expensive. How can we get from here to being international? The missing point might be the financing. Yeah. And yeah. so it's thinking about financing as a tactical move to get to where we want to go, as opposed to saying that this is what we're going to rely on to mm-hmm. get the business to keep on living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is often those big leaps like international mm-hmm. expansion where mm-hmm. the reality is, okay, I'm yeah. going to need an injection of cash here to be able to make this mm. happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and not, not just the cash, I guess it's also about like, so the investors who come in mm. and their knowledge and their resources and Absolutely. their network that will make that process so much, hopefully a little bit easier <laughs> than if I were doing it on, on, on our own. So it's thinking about 
how do I get from A to B? And it's if financing is the way, then, then that's mm. sort of the, the option that we'll take then. Mm. So where is B? Like what's the vision? What yeah. are you building? We want to be international, actually. Mm. <laughs> so I think the plan at the moment is to continue building our suite of products. So we recently released our all-day sofa, which is a sofa made from 100% recycled bottles. So we saved 200 recycled bottles from entering landfill in the ocean and that put that into the fabric so that we can continue that sort of sustainability in that sense as well. From there, it's thinking about the rest of the house now. So we've moved just into the living room. Now we're going to move into everywhere else. So it's lots of new products coming out this year. <laughs> Taking over one house one day at a time. <laughs> I'm so glad you talked about um, sustainability there. And you said earlier that any mattresses that are returned go to charities. Yep. I'd love you to talk us through how you as a business operate in a sustainable way mm. because obviously, you know, mattresses, furniture, a lot of it does mm. end up in landfill. Yes. Mm. Um, what are you doing as a company to offset that? Mm, yeah, it's a great question. I think we, we definitely think about that because like you said, mattresses are a huge, huge product. And if you think about that, just going into waste, it's like, wow, what a waste of all the resources that we would have spent to create that product in the first place. And now it's just sitting there and what mm. are we going to do with that? So I guess charity was definitely the option and that's actually something that we do for I think the majority of our products at the moment. Not with the sofa because it's still on pre-order right now, but mm. in terms of making sure that if we can't give it a second life, maybe we can on-sell it to another charity or some other resource that it could be used for. For Yeah. <laughs> yep. And what yep. about the process of creating a product that uses recycled materials. Why was that important mm. for you as a business to do? Yeah, I think, I guess it wasn't something that we had right up front, actually. We've always viewed sustainability as something that should always be there, but not necessarily something we want to tell everyone in the world about. It's kind of like the cherry on top in the way. So even in the way you visit our website on the sofa page, you would notice that if you go down and you think about the USPs, it talks about quality first and mm -hmm. comfort. And then at the very end, it talks about sustainability and that's made of plastic bottles. And that was very intentional because we didn't want to come off as like the greatest Thunbergs of yeah. the world and like sort of greenwash our brand in that sense. It's more like you come here because you want to get a sofa and hey, guess what? It's also sustainable. And that's, mm. that's the kicker. I mean, is that a financially savvy decision as well? I mean, is it cheaper for you to produce those couches? No. With, no? <laughs> no, it's actually more expensive to put sustainability right up front and center because it's actually cheaper to use a fabric that's because polyester is made of plastic right so to use brand new polyester than it is to source recycled bottles to make that into a fabric that, that's a much more expensive process but it, it is something that we, we chose to do and hopefully that's something that resonates with mm. the customers and the audience space that that do follow us and hopefully will follow us in the future. <laughs> and did you have to find a new manufacturer to help you do that? Or was that something, was that an existing partnership or an existing capability that your manufacturer had? No, everything was from scratch. So wow. actually when we first started with the mattress, so that was an existing manufacturer that we had known from a previous business. But with each new product line, it meant a brand new course, like a whole university mm. course to, to try and understand what are sheets, where do they come from, why are we choosing this product? And then from there we went to you know, we had our pillows and that was all made with a new manufacturer. Then we had the bed frame, which is a, like wood itself is such a difficult <laughs> material. <laughs> you don't want to get it scratched, but it can get scratched really easily. And, yeah. and especially when it comes to products that are very aesthetic driven, 
any little chip is something, especially with our 120-night trial, that people can just say, I'm going to just return that. Even mm. though it's a beautiful product, there's nothing else wrong with it. It's just the aesthetic. And it's, yeah, definitely, definitely big learning curve with every single product that we pop out. Mm. can imagine. Okay, so we just want to finish with a couple of final questions. Yeah. What is the best piece of advice you can offer to all the lady brains who are listening about building a business or a brand? So um, my best piece of advice is to hire people who you know are smarter than you, who are going to be faster and hungrier than you, and at the same time, you know, believes in your mission and vision. Because ultimately, the idea is to continually grow your business and with that, improve your company's average IQ with that as well. Mm. And by doing that, it means that you're able to ensure the business grows past yourself. Otherwise, you then become your own barrier to your company's growth. Love that. I love that. Improve your company's IQ. Mm. <laughs> That's great. Good line. That's a great line. What are you learning personally, professionally mm. next? Ooh, so I've got a bunch of uh, management books on my list, actually. I'm actually reading this book called The Peter Principle. It talks about how people eventually reach their level and competence because of the type of society that we live in. So it's very much of a hierarchy that we live in. So we think about, cool, my next step is to go higher and up and, you know, going up that ladder. But actually sometimes the best course of action is instead to just move forward. Mm. And so it talks about that. Oh, to read that one. I've heard of that <laughs> Great one. recommendation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And finally, we always give our guest the opportunity to shout out to uh, a lady brain or a person that has helped you on your business building journey. Yeah, definitely shouting out to Molly, who is our actual brand communications manager. She's also the one who hooked us up with this lovely little intro. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think she's, yeah, she's incredible and she's so hardworking and she's so driven and she knows exactly what she wants in life. And I think that's that determination that I really admire. Oh, shout out to Molly. Shout out to Molly. <laughs> She's in the room. <laughs> there were lots of lessons we took from this chat. Firstly, we talk a lot on the podcast about getting into the psyche of your customer. But what about the psyche of your employees? As Amanda said, business is all about people. Learn to truly understand your team, their hopes and their struggles. Look after your people and your business will thrive. Secondly, how you choose to view challenges and obstacles is completely within your control. You'll experience ups and downs, we all do, but you can choose to respond in a positive way and turn your failures into growth. And lastly, we cannot possibly know everything. Embrace the fact there are things you don't know and look to hire people who can fill in the gaps. Investing in your own learning and investing in other people builds the IQ of your entire company. We have some exciting new episodes dropping, so subscribe to the show so you don't miss them. To join the conversation, come into our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram at lady.brains for all the behind the scenes action. This episode was created in partnership with Eva. Lady Brains is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic.